I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Previously on Mentally Yours. Free newspapers that I find when I'm traveling, I, I pick them up and graffiti them and pass them away to passengers. More recently, I'm now braver at sort of smiling at someone across the carriage or I have a lot of eye contact with people, you know, who wonder what on earth is that woman doing graffitiing a newspaper? And I use charcoal, so it's very messy. And, um, you know, that obviously looks a bit odd on public transport. Uh, So it's become a way of sort of occupying myself, but also advocating for mental health and talking about mental health with strangers. Hi everyone and welcome to Mentally Yours, Metro.co.uk's weekly mental health podcast. Check out our other podcast, The Brilliant Good Sex, Bad Sex. I'm Ellen. And I'm Yvette. And this week's guest is Johnny Benjamin. He's a mental health advocate and he's just written a brilliant book called The Stranger on the Bridge, which tells an amazing story. We're going to be chatting about the book and also the amazing story behind the book, which is that Johnny was close to attempting suicide and then a stranger stopped him. He later met that stranger many years later. So really interesting story. My first, I guess, symptoms were really young, sort of like um, four or five years old. And um, I was first taken to see a child psychologist at that age. And then I guess I grew up with mental health issues, but I didn't really know if that makes sense. Mm. A lot of people do, I think. I didn't know what mental health was growing up. No one ever talked about it at school. So I didn't know that I was unwell. I was struggling. But then things got really bad in my mid-teens. And then from my mid-teens through, through my late teens, just got progressively worse I was uh you know I was I was uh kind of an A-grade student and I wanted to to prove to everyone that I was okay and I was doing well and I was gonna like um do really well in life and then when I was 20 I became really unwell and I had to drop out of uni and I ended up in a psychiatric hospital 
and I got this diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder. And that's when for me, like life changed after that. I was like, well, immediately life changed, really. I was like, whoa, like, how do I ever recover from this, basically? And I spent a month in the hospital. And then I decided uh, at the end of that month that I wasn't going to I wasn't going to get better. I was getting worse, which took me to this bridge because, yeah, I just thought there was no other way out really of this. It was like a nightmare. There's no other way out but to end my life. So I went to this bridge and when I was on the edge of this bridge, this stranger came along and, and talked me off the edge. Just his kind of his empathy and his um, understanding and his positivity i just hadn't sort of experienced that before in in the psychiatric hospital i was in it just wasn't a very hopeful place but this stranger uh, essentially gave me hope and yeah took me off the edge and i guess that was the beginning of my long road to recovery it took years but when i i guess when i finally kind of um got back on track uh, that's when i decided to launch a campaign to find him this stranger to say thank you um together with the charity uh, rethink mental illness um I, I launched this campaign with them to raise awareness of uh mental health but but also suicide as well we did it um and then we found them amazingly it was t- took two weeks um and through social media through facebook uh we found him he came forwards and yeah, we, we were reunited and we filmed a, a channel four documentary around it the stranger on the bridge and yeah, ever since then, we've kind of been working together and uh, it's been, yeah, it's been quite a journey, which has led me to today. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about him and what kind of things did he say to you at that point? The stranger who who I now know is Neil. I didn't know his name at the time. It's Neil. He's very easygoing, like the most easygoing person I've ever met. Like nothing seems to faze him. Um, it's good to have someone like that in your life. Like we're just everything just kind of like is so chilled. Well, there were, I think it wasn't just what he said, but it was the way that he listened. This very like active listening, like this very empathetic listening, this very patient. That was the thing. He was really patient in the hospital where I was. um, If I said that I was like suicidal, they would say, well, we need to up your medication. You need to go back to the suicide ward. Um, But this guy was just just really patient, just really accepting, just really like not phased by what I was saying, which was I hadn't experienced something like that before. Everyone always kind of reacted in a, oh my gosh, um, we need to sort this out if I said that I was suicidal. But he was just like, do you know what I mean? Like it was just nothing seemed to phase him. But there were were a couple of things he said to me that I think made the big difference. And I remember one of the first things he said to me was that I shouldn't feel embarrassed, which just I just hadn't heard anyone say that before. Because if I'm honest, that was the main, that was the main thing. I was, I was, I was so embarrassed, ashamed, the, you know, the stigma attached to the diagnosis and me being in hospital and I was incredibly embarrassed. So not only was I embarrassed about my mental health, but I was also struggling with my sexuality and, uh, that was really difficult for me. I come from a Jewish family and I just couldn't deal with it. So just for someone to say, just, it's fine, you know, don't, don't need to feel embarrassed. It was incredibly sort of powerful and liberating but I think the real key thing that he said to me was actually really simple he just said I think you'll be all right you know I think you'll get better and I needed to hear that from someone I needed to hear that because in the hospital where I was my psychiatrist was kind of like 
we don't know. We don't know the outcome for, for Johnny. And when you hear that, it's like, well, what is the, if I'm not going to get better, then what's the point of this suffering? But this stranger on the bridge was just really positive and just really like, no, you will get better. And, uh, that, yeah, that was that. I was just hearing that from someone. I think that was the, the key thing. Um, cause I didn't believe it myself, but he did. And that was what I needed to hear. I think. How did he approach you? So, uh, the bridge that I was on in central London, um, he was crossing it to go to work. And, uh, obviously he saw me in the distance and just kind of, kind of came up to me, stood next to me and started talking. And, uh, I remember at first I was really rude. <laughs> it's really rude. Cause I didn't want him there. And I was kind of like, just, you know, I've made my plan just don't like go away. Like kind of thing. But, um, yeah, he was really like grounded, really grounded and really kind of like, I'm not moving and you know, you're going to talk to me kind of thing really, but not in a, not in like a firm way and just like a really kind of, you know, I'm here for you kind of thing. We, we talked and talked and eventually I, I climbed up cause I was on the edge. I climbed over from the edge to the pavement and, um, he had suggested going for a coffee. It was free. It was freezing. It was January 2008 and it was freezing, freezing. And he said, let's go for a coffee. Let's go somewhere warm. Let's chat. And I wanted to, but, um, as soon as I stepped over onto the pavement, there was a police car waiting for me and an ambulance as well. And the police just charged out their car. And, uh, then it was kind of chaos. Uh, I got restrained and I got handcuffed and yeah, taken away. And then I was sectioned and yeah, we were obviously split up myself and Neil. We just, yeah, split up and police, he gave a statement to the police and then he went back to work and I went the other way to the hospital where I was sectioned and, uh, and that was it. Well, until obviously we were reunited. When you reunited, did you find out his side of things? What made him, cause it's quite a brave thing to yeah. do to actually walk up and keep pushing to talk. His mom's a counsellor. She works with, uh, young people in school. So his dad's very spiritual and very, uh, well, yeah, very spiritual. And I think he just grew up in an environment where there was a lot of openness and acceptance. And he's the sort of person that, you know, by his own words, he'll, if he sees someone in trouble or if he sees an argument starting or if he sees something that, you know, um, someone that needs help, basically, he'll, he doesn't hesitate. He just goes and I I'm, see it with him, you know, all the time when we're out and he'll always step in to anything. He'll always step in. He's not... He's just got this kind of um, bold and, and brave attitude, I guess. It's just, he's just, it's just part of him, really, which I wish I had. Um, he just, he's not afraid to kind of just go up and approach someone if, yeah, if he thinks they're in trouble or if he thinks there's something wrong with the situation. Like, that's just him. Does he realise, like, how amazing that actually is? I know, he doesn't. Yeah. That's the thing. He doesn't. He's <laughs> very so humble, actually. He doesn't. He doesn't. For him, it's just natural. Yeah. Because I guess, yeah, because he grew up with that and that's what his dad's like. And that, well, that's what his mum's like as well. I think, yeah, he just, it's just natural for him. He just didn't see it as a, as a big deal. I mean, obviously, you know, you know, obviously affected him what he did. And, and, you know, he talks about that and, you know, just kind of having to go straight back to work after this conversation and, you know, it's a big deal, but um, it's just naturally part of him, which is, uh, yeah, I think it's quite a rare and unique trait for us human beings is that kind of um ability to trust your instincts yeah that's what he's got he's very um self-assured which 
yeah, it's it's great. Because I think a lot of people would question, like, am I going to say the wrong thing? Is something going to go wrong if I get involved? Mm. So I think a lot of it is kind of just trusting, no, this is the right thing to do. He does talk about, you know, he was scared. Like, when he saw, when he really started talking to me and I started to talk and he revealed, and I revealed kind of what was going on through my mind, that's when... You know, he, he was he was scared and he had no training and he had no kind of, he, di- he didn't know how it was going to end up, but he he trusted his instincts, I think. He trusted his instincts. And again, it, in his own words, he kind of says, he just kind of, he almost tried to distract from the situation. He was asking me all sorts of questions like, where'd you go to school and where'd you grow up? And we actually grew up not that far from each other, which was amazing. Um, we had a little connection and... And I think he used that, do you know what I mean, to, to kind of his advantage and started asking me all questions about the area. And yeah, he, he was sort of trying to distract me, trying to take my mind away from... And again, that was all just kind of, I guess, instinct for him. Just, yeah, um, quite amazing. And now, and now he's, uh, you know, he's working in mental health and uh, he's a mental health first aid instructor. Um, so it... Changed his life as well, actually. Changed his life as well. He was a personal trainer, but yeah. And I think actually, because he says as well, you know, his work as a personal trainer, actually, you know, when when he's helping people with their kind of fitness, their physical health, he's actually also helping them with their mental health. And a lot of people, again, in his words, a lot of people would actually start to open up to him because, you know, it's, it's quite a personal, intimate thing, being a personal trainer for someone. And, you know, there was always you know, a release of something often for people when they're doing, you know, training. And so he was often kind of, um, it wasn't just about doing the physical stuff. He he was actually kind of, he listened as well to a lot of people kind of opening up, I guess, throughout the year. So I guess there's that side of it as well. In the immediate, like, after effects, you were taken by the police and restrained. How did you feel towards him at that point? Did you feel grateful or was there kind of anger maybe not so much at him i was just angry at the whole situation and frustrated and upset and it was pretty unpleasant um being sectioned it was yeah i was frustrated um but that changed later on after the whole you know process of being sectioned and that was done and i was taken back to the hospital that i ran away from i was ashamed and i was embarrassed and i felt like i'd let people down and my psychiatrist had lied to and that it was yeah, I was kind of embarrassed, but I, um, I did, I felt he changed something in me, like the way that he was, he was, as I said, he was so positive and it sort of unlocked something in me, that positivity. I was not a positive person at all. I was so negative and, um, not that it like, didn't suddenly change just a little bit of me, had a little bit of light, I suppose, and, and, and hope from talking to him. So that frustration and that, Anger didn't last too long, actually, thankfully. Do you mind talking us through um, a bit of the process from being sectioned to your road to getting things back on track? It took, yeah, it took years. It took years. Uh, kind of all of my, so I was I was unwell when I was 20 and sectioned, that whole thing was when I was 20. And I don't think I really like sort of got back on track until my mid, my mid late 20s. And it took a long time. It took a long time of... Um, battling my mind and um not opening up about it and, and not wanting to I came off my meds soon soon after and I 
I did all the things that people told me to do, like go to therapy, but I wasn't really engaged. I still just couldn't get over this shame, this embarrassment, uh, this this stigma. I just couldn't. I just couldn't get over it. And yeah, it was only my mid to late twenties I started opening up and talking, and I started engaging with therapy, and I started uh, mindfulness. Actually, um, I went on a mindfulness course, um, and that that was a quite a shift for me. But yeah, I think it was the the the, the talking and um, that when I finally started talking, and I actually started because I never spoke about it really to to friends and family. Um, it was all hush hush, you know. It's just like, well, Johnny's had a blip, or Johnny's had a you know a bout of depression, and I just I never went into the details because yeah, just this embarrassment. But when I finally did start kind of talking and opening up and therapy and the, the mindfulness that's when things started to click into place and I started to feel more myself and I, I again through my through my early 20s it was that lack of purpose I just felt I didn't have a purpose anymore I was just sort of just there surviving not not actually living if that makes sense yeah so yeah in my in my in my mid late 20s I finally got my first job and I started uh making films actually about mental health and that was like oh I have I finally I've got purpose I'm going to help people and that changed things for me I think having that finally having a purpose and not feeling so kind of uh lost and you know it's just all about this diagnosis there's more to me than that that's when I think that's when I think things changed you spoke a lot about feeling a lot of shame and then you went into talking about your mental health quite openly and talking about suicide which there's still so much silence around how did you get to that point and do you still feel kind of cagey about sharing it or does it feel more natural now i can talk about things when they've happened one like after they've happened if that makes sense yeah. i still find it difficult to talk about things in the moment but I, I i remember actually it was a it was a conversation i had with um a family friend of ours who had a heart attack and uh he i saw him afterwards after he had this heart attack and he opened up to me about um, what it was like for him going through that experience. Like, you know, he went through everything. He was like, told me about, you know, the, the pains in his arm. He got while he, was, while he was driving and then he was admitted to the hospital. He had the bypass. He, he was on these medications and he talked for hours to me. And I don't know if it was intentional or not, but he, yeah, helped unlock something with me because I was like, this isn't right. This isn't fair. Like, you can talk about your physical health, your heart so openly. And uh, why can't I talk about my mental health? And Watching him talk so openly about his physical health really made me want to talk about my mental health, if that makes sense. And um, I think that was the catalyst for me to... But it took some time to really, like... Because there was also the... <laughs> there was the mental health element, but there was then, you know, dealing with my sexuality. And there was a link. Well, there is a link that, you know, my psychiatrist, uh, he really pushed me to come out about my sexuality and um he made me tell my parents um which in hindsight was the best thing it was the best thing and i think that uh i think that helped then to then go on to talk about my mental health because um i felt a lot of shame towards both of those things but once i kind of started talking about one then the other became easier as well and kind of this is sort of my job now talking and yeah giving talks on, on mental health and suicide and yeah it's cathartic it's cathartic but yeah it's still difficult when when things are happening in the moment and uh i still sometimes get 
I'm lucky because I'm really lucky because I've got a really great therapist, really great therapist. I'm so lucky. And also my psychiatrist now I can talk to, which I just couldn't before. I just always felt like, I don't know. It just felt like sort of, I wasn't listened to that much. It was like, they were so focused on medication and like, we, we just need to be on this dose. You know, you have to be on this dose. And whereas this psychiatrist just, again, it's all about the listening. She really, really listens and, and takes things on board and, you know, ask those questions and I don't know, it's different. And yeah, I think that helps as well. Having those people around professional people that, you know, you can open up to because I couldn't do that before. I was always, uh, I never was that honest with psychiatrists and therapists. I was just like, yeah, I'm fine. Mm. <laughs> and I really wasn't. Were you quite wary um, of talking about things like the things that you talk in your book so for example um seeing figures mm. and hearing voices that sort of thing um was that i mean i can understand why there might be sort of that might be a challenge to start with because there's mm. so much stigma around things like that i was yeah three four years old when i started having like my first uh i guess sort of delusions with seeing the bfg rolled as the bfg and uh seeing these figures and um i mean at the time i I was scared. I couldn't really communicate what was going on. But now, again, I think, you know, because it happened such a long time ago, um, I kind of got a bit of a disconnect to it. And, and that helps. If Again, if things are happening in the present, uh, that's not so easy to, to talk about. But things that happened growing up, like, you know, having this devil voice and having to do things three times, it was telling me to do things three times. And, and also, I, I've got some insight as well. Things that go on in my head in present day, I don't always have insight into why am I, why is this going on? But things that happened in my past, I've got insight. So like, I think that I was hearing this devil voice because of my sexuality, because I I, I was, I was being punished because of my sexuality and I, I was a bad person and there was a link between, between those things. So back then I was, I just couldn't talk about any of it, but now I can, I can look back and I can, I can talk about it. Are there any simple, well, nothing's completely simple, is it? But fairly simple tips you'd give to men that are struggling with their own mental health at the moment. You know, they're at the stage where they feel a lot of shame around it. I think having some sort of outlet, having an outlet is so important. Uh, for me, you, you, that was always writing a diary. I kept a journal and just getting the thoughts out of my head, even if, you know, it didn't make sense or... It just helped. It helped getting everything out of my head and onto the paper, actually writing things down. But yeah, so I often say, you know, writing is a start. It's a, it's a start before you can actually, if you feel you're not ready to talk, then, you know, at least write things down. And I often say, write a letter to someone, write a letter to the person that you want to talk to about whatever's going on and just put everything down in the letter. And um, sometimes that can give you the kind of impetus to then go and talk to that person. That's what I find. But having an outlet of some sort is is so important, whether that be yeah, writing or art or music. I think that's 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 so important. That's the first step, I think. And then obviously the talking. And I mean, that's the, I think that's the hardest thing is the talking, really. There's so many amazing like charities and organizations. And, you know, like for men, for example, uh, Calm, the, the charity Calm is specifically kind of aimed at, at men. And I love their stuff. Like I love... The young, well, not just young, but the men that that share, you know, um, their articles, their blogs for the Calm website. It's amazing. Like, so open and honest and raw. And take a look at their website and, and read. Because I think that helps as well, is when you read other, or hear other people's or watch other people's experiences. Then, then you're like, I used to go to um, 
like an anxiety group and uh i found it really useful actually because um people would vocalize things like that were in my head that i hadn't yet do you know what i mean like formulated the words myself but i was like oh yeah like yeah i get that or i really resonate with that and that makes a difference when you can finally you know resonate with something and you don't feel like an alien so i guess it's to yeah to to have an outlet to talk but also to kind of find things that resonate with you i think when i was growing up i just found it really difficult to resonate with with anything and when i was diagnosed i just found it yeah but but now i think we live in a really great time you know things like time to change as well um you guys obviously all your podcasts like you know people can listen and it's so amazing when someone says something and you're like oh my gosh like that's going on in my head or that's exactly what i experience or that gives me an insight into why i might be experiencing that that's a real kind of uh like relief when that happens i think one thing i wanted to ask is you've been talking about mental health and kind of working it for a really long time now what do you think has changed? Do you think things are getting better? Do you think public attitudes are getting better towards mental health? I think, yeah, I think attitudes are, are getting better. Yeah, I think attitudes are getting better. I think the stigma is decreasing. I still think we've got a way to go yeah. in terms of uh, treatment and um, care and support. And um, that feels like that's it's just very frustrating. I think everyone... That, is involved in mental health feels the same way it's just it's just really frustrating you know the the this and it's not just about it's not just about because we always talk about funding and it is about funding yeah but it's not just about that there's other things that you know need to be changed as well like um just you know it's not a one-size-fit-all approach and so many people tell me you know all they're offered is all they're offered is this it might just be counseling it might just be cbt and you know one thing doesn't just work one thing doesn't work for everyone you know everyone's so unique and so different in in their experiences and so i'm having something at the moment called cft which is um compassion focused therapy which is really useful it's been really useful for me of it's been kind of a revelation but i that's not offered on <laughs> that's not offered on the nhs yet and uh you know there's other things like the open dialogue therapy and um I just wish that, you know, there could be a bit more open-mindedness within the mental health service. And I know that's got a lot to do with funds, but it's not, it's more than that. It's actually, yeah, being open-minded and it's not just this one-size-fits-all approach. A lot of your story is about a stranger kind of making the move to reach out and be quite brave. What would your advice be to anyone else to kind of make that effort, maybe not in the same situation, but say if they think a friend is struggling or mm. someone they barely know is struggling, what can they do to help? You know, Neil, because we, myself and Neil give talks a lot and Neil often gets that question, you know, like, what would I do? Like people say to him, well, you know, I don't think I could do that. And what, what advice do you have? And he always says, you, you, you can't say the wrong thing. I mean, obviously you can, but you just, you just use your instinct. You just use your human natural instinct and, you know, you won't say the wrong thing, you know. No, you yeah. you just you just wouldn't. You just you just use your natural human nature. You you, you wouldn't. I mean, people think that um, there's a misconception that you know if you say something, it's going to put an idea in someone's head. Um, and there's so much evidence that shows you know something like suicide, for example, is if you say the words, you know, are you feeling suicidal, it's not going to suddenly put that idea in the person's head. Actually, it's going to help them to say, oh yeah, it, yeah, because you know you're giving them permission to talk about it. So. I think, yeah, don't don't shy away from things. Don't be afraid to go there. And, you know, yeah, you might get kind of uh, 
push back or you know i remember when i was in my early 20s i didn't want to talk to anyone and i i got really pissed off with people that would like oh come on let's talk or uh, you know i wasn't ready and i think that's the key is the perseverance and the persistence um you know i've got people in my life where you know i really want them to talk and open up and i know they're struggling but they're not ready and you have to be you have to be ready don't you and um but it's it's not giving up on someone i think that's so key is not giving up on someone you know i lost friends along the way because people would get frustrated you know oh you know why are you not coming out again and you know i don't get it and just come out and i was like but there were people that you know stood by me no matter what and you know i'm here for you when you're ready when you're ready and i think that's key is the the patience having patience but persevering as well you know not in a kind of like you need to talk you need to talk you need to talk but just in a gentle way something that my mum bless her she she still does this she like cut stuff out of the paper for me my my mum does that for mental health like oh she'll she'll say like oh Stephen Fry did this or or Ruby Wax said this do you know what I mean and uh that was her way of getting to me um indirectly or, you know, they will read, but like Matt Hake's Reasons to Stay Alive, like that kind of, for my mom, that really helped her to really get an understanding. And so doing things indirectly, like talking about it indirectly, like, and again, we're lucky because we live in an age where, uh, you know, lots of people are talking about it from like Stormzy to like, you know, Lady Gaga, we can refer to loads of people. So yeah, talking about it indirectly. And I think always like that message of hope, that positivity, like, you know, you will get through this. You, I don't think you can say that enough times to someone. You will get through this. You will, yeah, this will pass. You know, this, this, is, this isn't going to stay like that. People need to hear that because um, sometimes often they don't hear it from professionals. So they need to hear it from people around them. You know, this will get better. You will recover or, you know, you can get through this. Thanks very much to our guest Johnny Benjamin. One thing that was obviously incredibly interesting about that was the way that he was talking about the guy that got involved in his situation um, and how he said that was such an incredible thing. Um, that's quite unusual, isn't it? Um, yeah, which is sad. It's sad that we think it's that amazing to intervene. Mm. But I think it is scary. Like a lot of people don't feel like they're able to step in or ask what's wrong because they feel like they're going to say the wrong thing or mm. the reaction might not be good. Mm. I think for me, if I was crying on tr public transport, which I have done um, on the tube uh, behind sunglasses, as oh, you do. I, I don't do it with sunglasses. Uh, I just go full on crying on the bus. Yeah. Um, maybe handing someone a tissue because then you're not necessarily... Yeah, it's it's hard to know what to say, isn't it? Sometimes, but it's I suppose really something tricky. like that might help. I think that would be a good way to start it because then it's up to them. Like the communication's open. Mm. If they want to talk, they can. If they feel like it's too much, they've got tissues, and that can be the end of it. Mm. So I think that's like. But I definitely feel like I've been on both sides of that. Like I've done a lot of crying on public transport, as I do, and also you know had panic attacks out in public, and no one said anything. But honestly. I don't know how I would react in that point if someone did say something mm -hmm. or did ask something. I think I would probably, I would probably shut them out in all honesty. But on the flip side, I literally saw someone crying in public the other day and she could tell she was really distraught. But I was like, I want to check that she's okay, but I just worry, am I intruding or am I going to say something that upsets her more or makes it worse? Mm -hmm. So you end up just doing nothing and then you feel awful afterwards. 
So I think maybe it's just we need to change our culture a bit and make it okay to like make it not embarrassing to ask someone are you okay and just talk to them mm. that shouldn't seem like such a scary thing yeah i know i slug off london a lot but i really think this is <laughs> a bit of a london problem in particular yeah. um because people do in my experience like because i most of my life I haven't been living in London so from coming from outside and then it just feels like it's a much more insular type of place um the kind of place where people yeah really don't talk to each other mm. um even from I mean from like social niceties to just sort of going for a walk and saying hello you oh, know yeah. you don't get that in London and yeah I, I feel like people's walls are kind of harder around they're so each high up and I think it's a real shame because obviously we have like a minister of loneliness for this exact reason that we're shunning everyone else out and we're you know secretly like desperate for human connection mm. but we feel embarrassed and like awkward about saying that it definitely is a london thing so i remember when i was growing up with my mum, who's from yorkshire we would walk into town and she would say hello to everyone and i was so embarrassed i would literally beg her like you have to stop and she has stopped now which is kind of sad but it's complete yeah it's just not the done thing here which is really sad because it's something that we clearly need so this is goodbye from mentally yours so go away enjoy your day get on with all your chores from mentally 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 yours mentally yours mentally yours, mentally yours. If you've been affected by any of the issues we discussed today, please contact Samaritans at 116-123 or go to the website at samaritans.org. Thanks very much to our guest, Johnny Benjamin, and to our producers, Sam Bonham and Juliet Nichols. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give us a review on iTunes and come hang out with us on Facebook. We've got a Facebook group called Mentally Yours. You can also follow us on Twitter, which is Mentally Yours with YRS instead of yours. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 